I'm glad you're here this morning. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter, New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you're a guest this morning, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series called Aliens. It's a study of this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the early church uh, who, because of their faith in Christ, because of their reverence for God, their desire to obey God, uh, they, were, they were going to, as Peter put it, they were going to be misunderstood by the culture around them and they're going to be viewed uh, in some cases as, as a strange and alien people who don't always seem to fit in. And last week, uh, we noted how when Peter wrote the letter, Christians were suffering intense persecution. They were the tragic victims of the deceit, the injustice, and the ferocity of one man, Nero, uh, the emperor of Rome. And as a result of all the pain and the loss, the abuse and death uh, inflicted on them, believers in the church were rattled. You know, they, their confidence was shaken. And realizing this, uh, Peter writes to reassure and reaffir- uh, reaffirm and reinforce their, their sense of security. He reminds them uh, that their hope for the future, their, their, their hope for eternal, uh, their eternal destiny was safe no matter what happened to them because they had placed their faith in Jesus, a firm foundation, uh, the divine and perfect cornerstone, as Peter put it. And he says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, never embarrassed, never disappointed. But uh, Peter doesn't stop there. In an effort to further encourage his readers, he continues to you know, stress the spirit, this spiritual reality and, 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 and the reality of who these Christians were as God's people and who we are as God's people. And he does so beginning in verse 9 by writing this. He says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Uh, Before we go on, uh, let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, again, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here today together, your people. Uh, And I ask God that you'd give us the ability over the next few minutes just to quiet ourselves down and uh, remove those distractions um, that occupy our minds and lives and at least for a few minutes here, uh, be able to focus on you and what you have to say to us and um, help us to understand who it is we are, whose we are, we're yours and what that means in our lives, and what that means to the world around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, Peter, as we've seen him do before, he, uh, he packs a lot of information into four short verses. And so for the sake of time, for the sake of summary, here's what he's doing. He's presenting a um, description of genuine believers. And those who truly put their faith and trust in Jesus, uh, he basically describes uh, who they are and how they live Uh, in the midst of a pagan culture. And notice how he starts off by saying to Christians in the church, he says, you are who? He says, you are a chosen people. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on that this morning because um, Peter is revisiting something that we've already, he's already said and we've already talked about because all the way back in chapter one, and if you've missed any of the the parts of the series, you need to go back and listen. But back in chapter one, he opens the letter by referring to those in the church as God's elect uh, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In short, he says to Christians, he says, look, as hard as it is to fathom, God decided he wanted you to be part of his family. 
Uh, it was a conscious, sovereign choice. Uh, he knew what he was getting into when he chose you. Uh, he knew everything about you, what would happen to you. He knew the kind of person that you would become. He knew, he knew all, the, all your problems and potentials, your, in, uh, your involvements and idiosyncrasies, your victories and your failures, and he elected to love you anyway. Uh, in, the, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of, of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And so both Paul and Peter affirm this, this amazing reality of God's choosing. And I'll be honest with you, I can't, I can't fully understand it or explain it, but I know this much, that uh, God's choice is not about our goodness. It's about his grace. It's not about us being perfect. It's about his mercy. It's, it's not that we're so spiritual, but that he's sovereign. And it's most certainly not that we loved him first, but that he first loved us. And so Peter's point is, if you're a Christian, you're special. We all are. Because God graciously chose to love and embrace us as his people. And that reality should never, ever lead to arrogance or elitism, but to a deep, genuine uh, humility before God, before one another, and before our world. Peter also says to the, uh, to the church, he says, you're a royal priesthood. And we talked about this last week. Uh, in the Old Testament, men and women needed to go through a priest to connect to God, right? Priests had special rights, responsibilities, and privileges. They alone had direct access to God. Uh, only certain men could be priests. Only those belonging to a certain tribe of Israelites could be priests. Only the descendant, direct descendants of Aaron could be priests. Only those who were never divorced could be priests. Only those without disease or disability, uh, disabilities could be priests. Peter says, hey, Jesus changed all that. He said, how would you like to be a priest? How would you like to have a close relationship with God, direct access to him uh, without going through anybody else, even though you're not Jewish, even though you are a woman, even though you are divorced, even though you have a disease or a disability, even though you have no formal theological training? Peter says, understand, in Christ, everybody, every believer, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, young, old, every believer is a priest, endowed with all the rights and privileges that go along with it. And, by the way, he says, you're not, you're not just ordinary priests. What does he say? You are royal priesthood. In other words, you are members of the king's household, the king's family. You've got keys to the palace. Whenever, wherever, you have free and direct access to God. Then Peter says, he says, you're a holy nation, which is a fascinating and remarkable statement. Uh, keep in mind, Peter's used the word holy a number of times already in the letter and the Greek term he uses literally means to be separate, to be set apart, to be different. Uh, and the term he uses here for nation is the term ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnic. And it refers to a particular group of people who share a common culture. Here's my, here's my personal Reiki translation. Peter says to, to the church, you're a different culture of people. A different culture of people. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, just for fun, our staff, our entire staff and families uh, went out to do an outing together, a fun outing, and we went bowling. I don't know who I, whose idea it was originally to go bowling. I'm not a bowler. 
Uh, I'm really pretty bad at it. In fact, the previous time I went bowling, I got injured. Uh, my first ball, I went to throw down the lane. My, my knee buckled. I went down like a sack of potatoes. Uh, there was a group of middle school girls uh, on the lane next to me giggling. It was a humiliating experience. And uh, I got up and I bowled the rest of the game limping. I basically, you know, one of these deals kind of and uh, ended up having surgery on my knee. Uh, bowling is not fun. It is an extreme sport. It's dangerous. Um, so I'm not a big fan. Plus, on top of all that, look, and, and with all due respect to you bowlers out there, for me, it's a germaphobe's nightmare. I mean, think about it. Putting on those shoes, those funky, weird, colored shoes that a million other people have put on their nasty feet, and you're going to put them on, you're gonna put them on your feet? Do they sanitize these things? Are you aware of that? And, then, then, and then, then, you, then you go get the bowling ball, and you stick your fingers in the dirty bowling ball holes? What if the person before you had the stomach flu? Now you've got it, right? It's gross. Do they clean these holes? I don't know. This is a question I have. And then there's the bowling attire, the shirts, the colors, the embroidery, you know, the, the wristbands, you know, it's, it's just, it's just all kind of weird to me. In fact, here's a picture of not all the staff, but a good chunk of the staff. They got the shoes on. We had bowling shirts and I'm up in the back right hiding my head, my bald crest of my head is kind of blending in, <laughs> hiding, ashamed, ashamed of what I was doing, wearing somebody else's shoes and shirts. And so anyway, all that to say is. While we were there, it dawned on me that, you know, there's a, there's a whole subculture of bowlers out there in America who have their own jargon, their own shoes, their own uniforms, and their own opinions about hygiene, right? <laughs> well, at times, I think we view Christianity in a very similar way. We, we, we view it as sort of this small subculture of, of people uh, who have, you know, a few of their own set of unique habits and uniforms and jargon and likes and dislikes. But here's the thing. Peter's thinking goes way beyond the idea of subculture. The term ethnos here is far more comprehensive. He's saying, look, being a Christian is, is not like a hobby, like bowling. You know, it's not a side aspect of life that you do once in a while, maybe even once a week. Peter says, no, 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 no. He says, as, as Christians, you're a whole different culture of people. In other words, the way that we view life, the way that we view the universe, the way that we view our very existence is different from everybody else. Our understanding of reality is different. Our understanding of money is different. Our understanding of sex, art, gender identities, education, sports, and entertainment, all different. Our understanding of how to do business, of how to uh, respect our parents and love our kids, our view of our own possessions, uh, what they mean, how do we use them, how do we, how do we uh, relate to them, our, our, our relationship to other races. I mean, all of this is influenced by our faith and by what God says is right and good, healthy, and best for us and safe. Now understand, there are people who attend church who see Christianity as sort of a self-help deal, sort of a self-improvement thing, you know, and they say, well, you know, I've got, I've got to get spiritually healthy, so I'm going to hit church most Sundays, get my religion on, you know, and get my spiritual life in order. What they do is they compartmentalize it all. They compartmentalize faith as this one part aspect of their life. 
Peter is saying, being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is not that. Being a follower of Jesus impacts everything. It changes everything about us. Christianity is not just one more file among many in the cabinet. Christianity uh, is the cabinet. You know what I'm saying? Christianity is not just the, it's, it's the cabinet in which all the other files go. It's not, just the, it's not just a component on the motherboard. It's the entire computer. That's Peter's point. He's saying, look, you are a completely different culture of people, a holy nation. You see the entirety of life and reality very differently from everybody else. And you live differently from everybody else. He says, because you are God's, what, special possession, uniquely loved um, and valued by God. We're precious to him. And Peter says, and so we have the privilege of declaring the praises of him who called us out of the darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, we have the honor of not, not just knowing this God and his love and grace, but sharing the news of this God uh, to the world around us. As Christians, through our worship, which isn't just about singing, it's about living. Through our worship, through our lives, literally, we advertise uh, the powerful work of God from his activity in creation uh, to the miracle of redemption. And this praising, Peter says, it flows from the very fact that we have experienced mercy. You know, he says, once you were a people who had not received mercy, now, as God's people, you have received mercy. Once you lived in darkness, complete darkness and judgment, now in Christ you live, you live in light and grace. Once you were guilty, now you're forgiven. Once you were lost, now you were found. I mean, the point is simple. As Christians, you are special. As followers of Jesus, you are special. Now, I don't know, maybe you're here this morning, you don't feel particularly special. Uh, we all have those days, right, where we don't feel, you know, we don't feel particularly um, appreciated. We feel a little undervalued, unimportant, lousy. I have those days. I get it. I know how it feels. But let me point out something to you, and I'll try to say it as gently as possible. How you feel is not necessarily what's most important. How I feel is not necessarily what's most important. Some people win the lottery, they don't feel rich. After a wedding ceremony, some couples don't feel married. Some people have PhDs, don't feel smart. Feelings come and go. So what's most important is not, is not the feeling, but the fact that if you've embraced the love and grace and mercy of God that comes through faith in Jesus, you are indeed special. God's special possession. No matter what, that's the truth. That's who you are. But notice how Peter now immediately moves to describe how this spiritual reality practically transforms the way that we live. First privately and then publicly. First privately, verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, those who are set apart, those who are different, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. You see the reasoning here? He's saying, because of who we are, God's people who have received mercy, our lives are being changed from the inside out. Um, the Greek term we translate abstain literally means to hold back or to resist. And the phrase sinful desires, well, that reflects a very interesting Greek term. It's one we've talked about before because, because it's a term that Paul uses, James uses, uh, John uses. Sometimes it's translated lust. Uh, sometimes sinful desires as here 
But the Greek term is a compound word that literally means over-desire. I like to say uber-desire, so we'll remember it. Uber-desire, and the word tells us that sin is not just about breaking rules or desiring something bad, but also, and in many instances, it's over-desiring something good. See, as human beings, God has created us with desires, all of us, good ones, healthy ones, a desire to love and a desire to be loved, a desire for companionship, desire for friendship, a desire for food, for water, uh, for sex, desire for significance, a desire for success, acceptance, approval. But when those desires become inordinate, excessive, when they become dominating uber desires, that's when the trouble starts. Uh, because they entice us to do whatever necessary to fulfill them. For example, uh, enjoying food and drink is a good and necessary thing, but over-desiring, you know, living to eat and drink is an unhealthy problem, sometimes used in an attempt to control or cope with life. There's nothing wrong with sexuality, but to live for sex, to be obsessed with it, is destructive to life and relationships. Um, There's nothing wrong with trying to look good, but to live to look good is problematic. There's nothing wrong with rest and leisure, but over-desiring it, it may be an indicator of something. Uh, Sociologists are talking more and more about Americans' uh, addiction to entertainment, which many attribute to a lack of purpose. we We have this lack of sense of meaning. We don't know why we're here. We feel empty. So we try to fill it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, with desiring success, but over-desiring it uh, to find self-worth and value is futile. Uh, there's nothing wrong with money, but over-desiring it can lead to greed, deceit, hoarding, thievery. There's nothing wrong with owning stuff, nice stuff even, but an over-desire to have more and more and more just fuels envy, jealousy, and poor stewardship. You guys get it, right? You see what he's saying. Peter's point is that because of who we are, you know, those who have experienced God's mercy and understand what he says is right and true, good and healthy and best for us, we realize how desiring what's bad, or in many cases over-desiring what's good, leads to rebellion, sin, and it's destructive. And so we resist them. You know, for me, the, the war imagery that Peter uses really captures the essence of this this internal struggle that's going on within all of us, you know, this private battle between our natural sinful inclinations and the Spirit of God at work in us. And it's a conflict between choosing what we know is right and what we know is wrong. And you look, everybody recognizes the struggle. Everybody sees it for what it is. Everybody. I mean, some describe it as Sigmund Freud did, as unconscious processes which resist and subvert conscious intentions. Uh, Others think of it in terms of evolutionary biology, describing the human animal as an ambassador sent forth by an unstable coalition. Or you can state it like the Apostle Paul, who said, what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, that's what I do. I know the good it's, uh, that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For, what, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Elsewhere in the New Testament, James writes to the church and he says to Christians, what causes the fights and quarrels among you? Hmm? What is it? Don't they come from the desires, here's our word, uber desires, these over desires that 
battle within you? You, you? you want something, but you don't get it. So you kill, you covet, you mistreat each other because you can't have what you want, what you over-desire. Listen, it doesn't matter how old you are, how spiritually mature you feel, or how much theology you can articulate. No Christian is exempt from these over-desires and, and, and this internal conflict between our natural sinful inclinations and, and, and the Spirit of God at work in us. And man, I wish I could stand up and tell you I've got it all figured out and I could give you a simple recipe to end, end the struggle, but here's the deal. The war will never be over, not completely, not in this life. Because I struggle and you struggle. And Peter, James, John, Paul, they all struggled. But, the, but Peter's point here is that as those who've been spiritually reborn, who've experienced the love, grace, and mercy of God, every day when we get up and we remember who we are, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, we will more and more resist the destructive over-desires that tempt us because our lives are being transformed from the inside out, privately. But the change just isn't a private thing, you say. That's, that's what Peter is saying here. It's also a public thing. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, by resisting evil and conducting ourselves in a good, godly manner, we will have a spiritual impact on the world around us. Understand, as, as followers of Jesus, like it or not, everything we say, and even more so, everything that we do, reflects on him. Our behavior, you know, in our family, in our circle of friends, in our community, even in our church, either detracts from or adds to and enhances Jesus' reputation and, and the validity of his message. I mean, whenever I read these verses and reflect on this waging war imagery. I think of Alfred Lord, Lord Tennyson, who, uh, the poet, the great poet who writes in a, in a collection of poems entitled Idols of the King, how a soldier's pledge or a knight's pledge was to live pure, speak truth, right wrong, follow the king, else, he said, wherefore born. In the same way as Christians were to follow our king, live pure, speak truth, right wrong, else, wherefore born. Why else are we here? Our lives should be lived every day in such a way as to represent the God we love and the God who loves us and the God who loves the world. What does that mean? Well, Peter says it means we resist these over-desires. That's the negative aspect. But the positive side is we live good lives. We live good lives. How? Well, instead of, instead of malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, we demonstrate compassion, honesty, Humility, generosity, and forgiveness toward one another. In Peter's words, we, we love one another sincerely and deeply from the heart. It means we intentionally pray for one another and for our neighbors and even for those we don't really like. It means we stand against racism and injustice and we stand up for the weak, the marginalized, and the forgotten. It means we serve others without always having to be asked. We scrape the window of the car next to us in the parking lot. We offer free babysitting to a friend who's in need. It means we, we use our God-given gifts and talents and time and abilities to build up the body of Christ and strengthen its presence in the world. It means we mentor and tutor kids from under-resourced families and under-resourced schools. It means we rescue the sexually exploited and we help restore them to wholeness. 
It means we give generously out of our finances to the cause of Christ. It means we forgive a friend or relative who's treated us unfairly. It means we stay faithful in our marriages and we stay loyal to our friends. It means we provide clean water for the thirsty to drink. It means submitting to those in authority over us. It means loving those who are unlovely. It means caring for the sick. It means that we are the most humble, patient, kind, gracious, generous, merciful people there are. That's what I mean. I mean, what other things are on the list? What other ways can we demonstrate them? What, What else is on the list? And what other ways in your life can you represent the goodness of God to the world around you? It's a key question because Peter says, just as it was for a first century church living in a hostile culture, hey, same as you for us today. The pagans, just means those who don't know God, are watching. And if you call yourself a Christian, realize most of the people around you aren't as interested in your claims as they are in your conduct. Your family, your friends, your coworkers, your fellow students, they're not looking for a mere definition of your Christianity. They're looking for a demonstration of it. I mean, like it or not, Peter says, people are watching you. They're watching all of us, and they'd like nothing better than to accuse you and me of wrong because, because the world revels in the failure of Christians. And sadly to say, we're often our own worst enemy. Because sometimes we act in such foolish ways. We act ridiculously. And we set ourselves up for ridicule. But even on our best days, one mistake, one inconsistency, one lie, whatever, man, oh man, people will jump on you and judge you in a heartbeat, yeah? I mean, is that fair? No, it's not fair. Is it true? Absolutely, it's a fact. And that's what Peter's saying. He said, look, don't give people the chance. Don't give the world a reason to accuse you. Know who you are and live such amazingly good, excellent lives that those who don't know God will will see your good deeds and be spiritually impacted because they will see and learn of Jesus through you. In fact, Peter says, some will come to faith and experience themselves the grace and mercy of God and glorify him with you on the day of judgment. Or as Peter puts it, when God visits us. So let me ask, who in your life knows that you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian? And if there is no one, that's a whole other discussion. But who in your life knows that you're a follower of Christ? Who is watching you? Any names or faces come to mind? If not, think more carefully because I'm telling you, somebody's watching. And make no mistake about it, based on your conduct, they are drawing conclusions about your faith and about your God. Jesus put it this way. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good, your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, before we close, let, let me just clarify something. Make sure there's no confusion. What Jesus taught and what Peter describes here in his letter, you know, the good, excellent moral life, is what a Christian does. It's not how one becomes a Christian. See? Big difference. You don't have to achieve any degree of goodness to become a Christian. 
You simply have to accept the goodness and grace of God offered through Jesus. Because understand, you know, good rules are good rules, good deeds are good deeds, but neither can negate what we've done or supply what we need as flawed, broken, sinful human beings. And so Jesus came to live the, the perfect life we could never live and die the death we deserve to die, paying the debt we owe, providing the way of forgiveness in life. And so biblical Christianity is not about human achievement. It's just not. It's about humble acceptance. That's what makes Christianity so different, so strange, so unique, so alien from all other world religions. Because it's about what God has done for you. And when you truly understand that, and when you accept it, and you experience the love and grace and mercy of God through faith in Jesus, you will then declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And you will live in a way that points people to him. You will, as Tennyson put it, live pure, speak truth, right wrong, and follow the king, else wherefore born. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the words of the Apostle Peter who wrote to your church to encourage those living in the midst of a hostile culture um, among those who do not know you, did not know you. And um, today we are in a very similar uh, environment, um, living out our lives, living out our faith in, 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 a, in a society where so many don't know who you are uh, or have um, misunderstanding of who you are as their God and creator. And so in the midst of that, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us a sense of, 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 of purpose and that as you're, you're changing us from the inside out so that our lives would, would represent you, that we would live such good, compassionate, generous, mercy-filled, grace-oriented lives that people would see in us Jesus. And um, I pray that that would be true for each and every one of us here, both individually, as families, and corporately as your church. That through your working in us, we who have experienced your mercy um, would live pure, speak truth, uh, right wrong, and follow our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And really, you know, the idea of worship doesn't end with singing. Uh, it's really about the way we live our lives every day. You know, one of the things that Peter says in that text I couldn't really talk too much about because we didn't have time, but he talks about being called out of darkness into God's wonderful light, marvelous light. And uh, I was thinking about this idea of call this week, and I've been watching a lot of basketball. And, uh, and uh, during watching the games, I'm really into it, and the, my phone keeps ringing. You know, and I, and I don't want to answer it because I'm, I'm focused on the game. I'm watching the game. and I'm thinking, that's what calls do. They interrupt, right? Don't they? They interrupt your thinking. They can just kind of disturb what it is you're doing. And I thought, you know, that's really the way the call of God is. It interrupts our thinking in some respects because many of us have thought of, of God, of religion in terms of works, earning our way in. And when we realize that the call of God is about grace, uh, that interrupts our thinking. 
It disturbs our lives in some respects. And the call of God really does change our lives. It interrupts the normal patterns and it changes the whole way we live, the way we think, the way we view reality. And if you haven't experienced that yet, um, the question is, have you answered the call of God? who by grace will take you out of the darkness into the light through your faith in Christ. And if not, maybe the time has come for you to accept Jesus and become a follower of his. Talk to someone you know at Parkview, ask them about it. Following the service, our prayer team folks will be up here in the front. You can talk to them as well. Uh, and maybe you're, in, you're, you're just going through some things in life that are really hard right now. They're here for you as, uh, as well to, to serve you and pray with you, okay? Uh, in the meantime, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. We'll continue on in the study. We'll see what Peter says next. I hope you're enjoying it, and hope, hope it's helpful for you. Let me pray for you. And now, Lord, as we go, as we leave the building, we go as your people, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, um, a, a holy nation, your special possession. May that reality change us from the inside out. May we live such good lives uh, as to point people to you through our love and generosity and mercy and grace. And so then may your peace and strength and power rest on your people, the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.